0: Welcome, everybody, to Germany after Merkel, end of an era or more of the same. Uh, you have seen on the slide that's up that the hashtag of this event is uh, LSE Germany Votes or one term. My name is Walter Scherkle and I'm a political economist, a professor in political economy at the European Institute. What we want to discuss today is exciting German politics and that seems to be a bit of an oxymoron but there's a ni- nail biter of a, an election coming up and the only thing we know for sure is that Angela Merkel will no longer be the chancellor afterwards anymore she may be a caretaker for a while but then she will be gone and for some of you students that must be um, come as a shock the world uh, how you will wonder how the world looks after such a monumental change. But then we also know Scholz or Laschet are the most likely successors. So, in whatever constellation of a coalition, what difference does that really make? To help us answer this question, we have invited four eminent experts on German politics, German economics, and much more, as you will find. This first, Dr. Ulrike Franke, she's a senior policy fellow at the the European Council on Foreign Relations. She has a Ph.D. in international relations from the University of Oxford. And at the ECFR, she is responsible for the technology and um, European power initiative. She has done a Ph.D. on using drones by Western armies. So you can see where this linkage comes from. Then we have Dr. Christian Odendahl, an old friend of the European Institute and a regular on our panels. He's a chief economist at the Center for European Reform, a think tank that was for a long time based in London, that had a critical sympathy to the European integration process. And I mean, his research uh, interests read like my own. So in short, it's European Monetary and Economic Integration But he has also Germany as an interest. His PhD is in economics from the Stockholm University. And before joining CER, Christian worked as a senior economist at Rubini Global Economics in London. Then we have Mitch Rachman, head of Europe at the Eurasia Group, which is a leading political risk consultancy. Um, He's a graduate from the European Institute in the political economy program. And now also a senior visiting fellow with us at the European Institute and he's an adjunct professor of Sciences Po. Some of you will see Mitch again when he teaches you political risk analysis in your professional development uh, course. Last but not least we have Dr. Daniela Schwarzer who is an executive director of for Europe and Eurasia at the European Society Foundation of George Soros Before that, she was CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations, and also research director of the German Marshall Fund, and several jobs before, I think she was also once at the Financial Times, Deutschland. So without further ado, I would like each of these eminent young, fresh uh, experts asked to answer the question that is in our events program today. Will... A world after Merkel make any difference for German politics and the economy or not? I would like to ask Ulrike to start and she is, as you have heard, an ex- expert on security and defense po- policy. Perhaps she will also relate to that a bit. Ulrike, the floor is yours.
1: Right, thank you very much uh, for this kind of introduction and a wonderful good evening to everyone. Yes, I thought I'll I'll quickly talk about foreign and defense policy um, of Germany, you know, end of an era or more of the same. And I have to admit, you know, if you ask me like this in this kind of binary way, is it going to be an end of an era or more of the same? On foreign and defense of policy, I'm going to go with more of the same. (laughs) Um, I think there's, there's quite some continuity. This doesn't mean that there aren't some areas in which change... May happen independently of who wins, and maybe more importantly, some change will depend on who who wins in uh, uh, on Sunday and which coalition will form but so very briefly, I think the first point to really understand is that German foreign and defence policy has a long continuity, and this isn't just about sixteen years of Merkel, but even before this let's say the last three decades. There are certain things that kind of remain the same or are indeed priorities of most German policymakers and to some extent also the larger public. The first one would be the kind of the importance of the transatlantic alliance. This may go down a little bit at the moment, but it's still there. Second, the importance of Europe and the EU. And I think this is very much something that that pretty much all European, sorry, all German policymakers, other than maybe the extreme left and the extreme right, uh, subscribe to as well as the general public. Germany as a kind of unifying force within the EU and as a as a you know important player within the EU. There's also the general idea that Germany shouldn't take on too confrontational positions uh, with regard to other geopolitical players such as Russia and and China and the military. All things defense, all things military, aren't exactly you know popular in in Germany, neither in the general population but also not in the political uh, realm. Nevertheless, there's one area where I expect some movement with Merkel leaving, and this independently of who wins on Sunday. And this is Germany's relationship with regard to China. Now, to be sure, this isn't a change that's coming out of choice, but more out of necessity. Um, Because Germany, for the longest time, thought it could kind of bring China in, as did other countries, of course trade with China, get China to to develop as a liberal democracy and everyone would be happy. That doesn't seem to be the case, and especially the US is kind of pushing Germany and Europe to take on more of a position. So I think this this will happen to some extent and there has been some movement in the German political realm, including within the CDU and within the business community when it comes to positioning uh, Germany a bit more clearly with regard to China. But maybe more interestingly, there are some changes that will indeed depend on who wins on Sunday. And I'm sure you all know, you know, there are different coalitions that can form. It's all very unclear. So so I'm gonna generalize um, quite a bit here, but there are basically three topics in the realm of foreign and defense policy that I'm looking at in particular, and that I think will be treated differently under a CDU-led government versus an SPD-led government. And I'm not gonna talk about any other kind of coalition Versions We can discuss this in the Q&A, but broadly speaking, you know, either Christian Democrat-led or SPD-led. And these three issues that I think are worth kind of taking a look at is the NATO 2% commitment, you know, Germany spending 2% of its GDP on its own defense capabilities, Germany's role in NATO's nuclear sharing, um, and then third, a more or less uh, hawkish or muscular position with regard to China and possibly also um, Russia. And speaking, you know, very broadly, I would say that when it comes to the NATO two percent commitment and the idea that Germany should be spending more on its own defensive capabilities, under a CDU-led government, we are likely to try and do that. Um, now, of course, the CDU has been in power for the last sixteen years, and we haven't reached the two percent. But there is a commitment to the NATO two percent. There is a commitment of spending more um, uh, for the Bundeswehr. The, CDU, CSU actually consider themselves the parties of the Bundeswehr, um, obviously it's rhetoric but still important and they would try to, to at, at least do this and they see the military as some element of, um, you know, foreign policy. An SPD-led government is less likely to go down that road, the SPD hasn't made this commitment as clearly um, and there will be in a coalition with the Greens, which is pretty certain. Um, and the Greens basically reject the two percent goal and say the methodology is terrible, and we need to kind of rework the whole thing. That's number one. Maybe more important is number two: nuclear sharing. Um, as you probably know, Germany is a member of NATO's nuclear sharing, uh, not just politically but also militarily. So there are U.S. nuclear weapons that are stationed on German soil, and that German aircraft should, in in the, the situation of a crisis carry um, uh, in, you know, German, German aircraft should be carrying these U.S. nuclear weapons and use them. The thing is, these aircrafts are getting old, um, and the next government will need to make a decision on whether or not to replace these aircrafts and with what. Again, a CDU-led government is likely to just buy new aircraft and continue NATO's nuclear sharing and Germany's role within it, don't rock the boat, despite the fact that militarily, you know, nuclear sharing isn't doesn't really work that well. But anyway, I think they will try this. It says in their in their party manifesto that uh, they support NATO's nuclear sharing. An SPD-led government, much less certain, because you know neither the SPD nor the Greens, um, especially not the Lincoln, who may be in the government with them, really support nuclear sharing and support nuclear weapons. And it would be really quite difficult for them to buy aircrafts for millions if not billions of of euro to carry nuclear weapons. So under an SPD-led government, Germany may actually leave NATO's nuclear sharing, which would be a big deal. And to finish off um, the question of, you know, Germany's positioning towards geopolitical actors, especially China, but a little bit also Russia, I think under a CDU-led government, despite the kind of general change I described overall, I think a CDU-led government will try to not take on too strong positioning towards these actors. Um, I mean, the Russia sanctions will be, will be continued, but they will kind of try to find a middle way, uh, again, not rock, rock the boat too much, uh, which would be different on an SPD-led government, uh, especially, again, if it includes the, the, the Greens, because they have, they have emphasized uh, human rights issues much more and are likely to at least rhetorically take a stronger stance towards actors that, that violate human rights, such as China and Russia. The problem, of course, and this is my last sentence, is that the combination of what I said, you know, on the one hand, taking a more hawkish or stronger position towards geopolit- geopolitical actors, such as China and Russia, while at the same time not exactly um, feeding Germany's geopolitical power by investing in the military, could be a bit of a tricky um, political standpoint. But I'll end here with this you know, kind of broad overview.
0: Thanks a lot, Ulrike, for your few <coughs> you provocative hypotheses, and I learned a lot from this. I didn't know about this nuclear sharing, I have to admit. So, um, Christian, can I ask you to tell us a bit of how you think the German economy within the European recovery will do, and how that influences their stance on returning back to normal with, you know, fiscal rules and all that.
2: Yes, absolutely. Happy to. Um, I just wanted to add to the to to, to my CV that you read uh, out that I spent a year at LSE as a visiting PhD student and have only fond memories of that time. So very glad to be speaking at an LSE event again. Um my focus will be on on fiscal policy and the and the EU recovery from the pandemic. And um my verdict on sort of the the question of whether we are about to witness a new era or more of the same is sort of there is a chance for a new era, but it's not it's not certain. Um, so, I mean, Germany is known for its hawkish stance on, on fiscal policy um, as a macro tool on inflation, on public debt. I think that's all well known. Um, and I think we have the Eurozone policy mix to prove it. Uh, but then Angela Merkel, during this pandemic, agreed to the EU Recovery Fund, a huge European fund based on common EU debt with sizable transfers going south. Um, so that doesn't really fit. So what's what's going on and what does it say about the next government? Um, so I think there are, are six reasons for why the, the fiscal debate in in Germany has changed. Uh, the first is sort of the empirical assessment of the last 10 years and sort of whether the policy mix that we decided to implement was the right one. I think there are increasing doubts. Um, and this is, uh, this is more and more consensus um, that we didn't set the right priorities. Uh, we have declining interest rates that are now negative uh, for for most of germany 's yield curve and um, fast declining public debt levels up to this pandemic in Germany, so that the, the fear of ever increasing debt um, is is not borne out by the facts. Um, we have a generational change among those who shape that debate, so young people coming up with a different in, in media in policy making in businesses and so forth. Um, with a different experience, not the 1990s and sort of the sick man of Europe, uh, Germany, but Germany and Europe in the financial crisis um, we have sort of i think the pandemic brought that home uh, that point or finally brought that home point home is that our infrastructure uh, our digital digitalization our schools our public transport our uh, public administration and so forth, requires quite a bit of investment. Um, and I think this has sort of shifted the priorities also of the German public away from the obsession with debt towards more concern about sort of Germany's uh, infrastructure. Um, but I think there are two more reasons which are probably the, the most important, and that is the shift in the geopolitical setup um, during the Euro crisis. You know, Barack Obama was president of the United States. Um, Brexit was far away. So... And China was still a, as 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 Warika said, uh, you know, or we could have this 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 illusion that China was a cooperation partner and and uh, about to be become democratic. So it's a sort of this this whole de- geopolitical setup has changed and made sure made made people aware that Europe's economic strength is a political necessity, regardless of how you think about public debt. Um, and this is surely one of the main reasons I think why Angela Merkel agreed and not just agreed to the recovery fund. She was one of the driving forces of that recovery fund and put a lot of her own political capital into it. And the final, the sixth reason is climate change, uh, which during the Euro crisis did play some role, but nowhere near the role that it plays today in the political agenda. And it is very high up on the on the concerns of the German public. And so I think m- many more people are worried that we don't get climate change right than are worried about public debt. And so this is sort of a bunch of reasons why the, why the public debate has changed and that sort of opened up the political space also for Merkel to relatively safely agree on, on such a bold initiative like the European uh, Recovery Fund. Um, so what is the opening or what is the, what is the potential new era um, after this election? Uh, we still have very tough fiscal rules in Germany and in Europe um and they are enshrined in the constitution and the treaty so it's not easy to circumvent them um but i think that especially the climate angle is the is an important opening in that debate because fighting climate change with carbon prices alone uh, is politically toxic and i think the, cur- the 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 yellow vest in france and the uh, this autumn actually with higher gas prices uh, will bring that ho- point home once again that fighting climate change purely with carbon prices is, is politically extremely tricky. And I think conservatives will realize that they have to be a bit more flexible on their ideological stance on, on public debt and finances in the size of the state if they want to get this transition that they have sort of boxed themselves into through commitment and international treaties um, um, to get that right. And there are ways to do it. Right. So it's even if you know the SPD and the Greens in Germany probably would be keen on, on uh, reforming the, the debt break, it's clear that they can't do that because you need two thirds majorities in both houses of parliament uh, to do that. And there's no way we can reform the debt break if the CDU ends up in opposition. Um but luckily the German debt rule that R is in the constitution is relatively easy to circumvent if you do it right and to make it climate proof. Um, and the pandemic government, so Angela, Angela Merkel and Olaf Scholz, were smart enough to sort of pl- build in buffers for the next years uh, by planning their 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 budgets for 2021 and 2022 very pessimistically, so that there is still room for the transition. It only, it really, but depends on how far the Free Democrats are willing to go. So I'm just basing this on the on the assumption that that a traffic light coalition after this government, so the SPD, the Greens, and the Liberal, conservative, uh, free democrats uh, it, it will be the outcome. Um, it all depends on how far they are willing to go, and I think there it is a bit troubling that the FDP has given sort of balanced budget and no tax hikes such a high symbolic uh, importance in, in in their campaign, because the German industry, if you think about it, the German industry has been calling for more public investment uh, for years now, has been calling on the conservatives to rethink their obsession with, with debt and, and balanced budgets. The IMF has been doing that for even longer. And I think it's a sort of a, a, a fair rule of thumb is if, if you are to the conservative right of both the IMF and German industry, then you're probably a bit too far on the conservative end of the spectrum, and so this is where this is where I hope we get a rethink. Um, and so this is sort of my optimism that uh, you know the, the the push from the from the industry will make sure that even the FDP sort of realizes that that a, lot, a big bigger push of public investment is needed in Germany. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Christian. Bit of hope here. Um, before I uh, go on, you get all a chance to put in your Q and A in personally, or I summarize it depending on how eager you are. Uh, we'll finish this round. And I let briefly the speakers come back to each other. And then we open up. We have at least 45 minutes for Q&A. Daniela, the, the difference in geopolitical situation has now been uh, mentioned by a few. And while I would at some other point, I would have asked you also about euro area reform and so on and so forth. Today, I ask you in your new post, about this whole meaning of Eurasia for the German government in the EU and how it positioned itself there. Well thank you very much, Waltraud. I very much enjoy
3: being with you. Um, well I would say the topic of Eurasia is entirely absent from the German electoral campaigns. And the concept itself in Germany is not not very often you know, discussed. You can either take it as a geography, or you can take it as a political notion, which is mainly spread by Russia as a as an area of influence and as a you know collection of of, of states which share uh, deeper economic ties and and uh, if you ask Moscow, ideally also deeper political ties. That's the Eurasian Union concept that Moscow has been putting forward. So, if you admit, I would slightly re, if if you permit me to do this, I would slightly. Um reframe the question and ask about how does Germany look at Russia, um, at Russia's role in Europe's security order, and what does this mean for Germany's and Europeans' policy towards the EU's eastern neighbor neighbors. And obviously, the further east we go, the more we will also encounter China. So I will close with some remarks on China as well. Now, of course, many people have looked at almost everything that the candidates in the electoral campaign have said. Um, And it is quite striking that the big geopolitical questions are almost entirely absent. This includes really the relationship to, to Russia and as far as they can avoid, they also like to avoid the question of China. Because in my view, this is really one of the most tricky foreign policy questions for the German government going forward, um, for one thing, because the various iterations of readjusting Germany's Russia policy haven't really brought the success that one would have wanted. And it's very hard to imagine what else could be done that would fit the traditional, uh, toolkit of German foreign and security and defense policy that would actually change Russia's behavior. And there's little hope. So it's a very unattractive topic. But the truth of the matter is, of course, that we see that in our eastern neighborhood, at least two superpowers are expanding their influence. And that is Russia, if you take the case of, of Belarus, where the EU deliberately decided not to make this a geopolitical conflict um, and really kept out and just supported, you know, some some government supported uh, the dissidents, uh, you know, the opposition candidates and so on. But there was no offer that the EU would have made or that Germany would have supported towards Belarus to build an alternative to its proximity with Russia. So there is a lot of caution. And I do believe that part of the reason why the big questions of foreign policy are so absent from the German electoral campaign is that we are dealing and it's germany and europe from a german perspective always together and most closely i think uh, compared to other other countries that germany and europe in many ways are on the defensive side and basically see behavior in russia or in china that they don't approve of and their only way is to sanction this but there's no at the moment no um positive agenda that would actually promise a fundamental change of the situation uh, in the relationship with Russia. And um, from a European perspective, at the latest since the annexation of Crimea, there is a serious debate to be had about the European security order and whether Russia still sticks to the principles that have underpinned it until that point, which is essentially also a commitment to not changing borders with violent means. Now. Um, the outgoing government, and in particular Chancellor Merkel, has taken an important role in the relationship with Russia for the Europeans. The most prominent format being the Normandy format, which was essentially or is essentially a meeting between the leadership of Russia, Ukraine, and then Germany and France on behalf of the Europeans um, to discuss a resolution of the conflict. No tangible results, but an important channel of conversation. And I'm mentioning this because this is very often the bottom line that you get when you discuss with German policymakers, how should we approach Russia? What Germany always wants to do, and I don't see a major difference in that regard among uh, the parties who will possibly move into the chancellery, it is important to always keep the dialogue going. That is why some at this point say maybe it was a mistake to reduce the G8 format to a G7 format in reaction to the annexation of Crimea. So I expect the next German government to try and keep that dialogue with Russia op- open. But very frankly, the trust in the Russian government, if at all there was any in, in President Putin, it is, at in my observation, at, a, at an all-time low since ever he took office. Um, after even, you know, killings of U.S. secret services on German territory, the Navalny affair um, and many other anecdotes which I or, or serious events which we could line up, which have shown that there is no interest on the Russian side to actually move to a different place. But the external provocations and uh, the external expansion of of power and control over over other countries' territory, is really a function of the internal needs that President Putin has within Russia, and that will not substantively change. Now there are some differences in tone when it comes to the relationship with Russia, uh, with uh, a number of prominent SPD politicians more or less emphasizing, you know, the ties, the cultural base, the necessity to deal with Russia in a In a constructive way because it is a neighbour and some are even apologetic uh, with regards to those uh, moments where Russia really violated international law, kills its own people and so on. Um, But most of social democrat politicians really hold a very firm line on that, though they emphasise the need for dialogue in a different way than maybe Uh, the Christian Democrats would, although they also do that, as I said. But everyone, I think, in Berlin at this point has become more realistic on Russia than it used to be. Now, what is then the policy proposal towards the eastern neighbourhood and Eurasia? Um, I think that Germany, whoever moves into the chancellery, will continue to support European policies in particular towards the three frontrunners of the Eastern Partnership, which is Russia, Ukraine and Moldova, to support their closer ties with the European Union. There will be no membership perspective um, coming out of Berlin or, or Brussels as a goal. Um, however, closer ties and, uh, you know, a review maybe of the Eastern Partnership Agreement and more offers in particular at the moment. Uh, Moldova is a very interesting country with a newly elected President who really really invests a lot in fighting corruption and is a hopeful candidate for real change in the region. I think there will be bilateral investment on the German side but also the EU final words because I'm uh, looking at time and this is you know it's it's a long it's a big topic and I don't want to be too long on Eurasia. I think the realization now in the in the wider sense going further east um, I think the realization that is now present in the European Union is that we lost time and in a way created a vacuum because um, there was an interest to build closer ties with Western partners and Russia didn't fill that vacuum but China eventually did through major investments also in the area of tech and digital. And so the concern of Europe is that this provides alleys of influence, not only into our eastern neighbourhood, but right into the European Union as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, and in particular its digital component. So in a way, I think the new phase now, as the new German government comes in, will be a more critical perspective on what is happening in the region, seeing it under the headline of systemic conflict, which plays out very practically. For instance, when you think about standard setting and regulatory uh, standards when you think about the way political systems may be in a good or in a bad way uh, underpinned by new technologies and what we see is the increasing use of, authorit- of that authoritarians use technology to underpin their power um, and China exports very proactively and precisely into that region. So I think the, the perspective on the region has really changed from being one um, where Europe competes with Russian influence to one where we compete with both, while China being the far more strategic and, in my view, the far more consequential for Europe as it looks at its wider neighborhood.
0: Thank you very much. That will be a big change then, and how Germany will react to this. Thank you, Daniela. Mitch, finally, after all these German perspectives from people who have often lived abroad, uh, or most of the time, as, as it seems to be, from some CVs, but still, they're Germans and look, so to speak, from inside out. You're the only non-German on the, on the panel. And I would like to ask you, what do you think are the relationships where Germany uh, you know, may have to change its position and where those from outside will hope for some change or continuity, depending how it is. I think in particular of the UK, of course, after Brexit, but also France and perhaps Italy. Could you say something on that?
4: Thank you, Waltraud. So, yes, what I'll do in my brief remarks is look at um, what the transition in Germany means for Europe, both in terms of political leadership um, as well as some of the nearer-term policy challenges. And I think, I think it's not an exaggeration to suggest there is some concern in Brussels, Paris and elsewhere about the vote on Sunday and some of the implications that will follow on from that vote. And I think... The concern the concerns are really threefold. One is, um, you know, are we looking at weaker German leadership in Europe overall going forward? Secondly, to what extent does that feed into a broader leadership deficit that the Union will face in light of the transition we're also going to see in France in the first half of next year? And then, if you think about weaker German leadership and a transition in France, what does that do to the union's ability to address some near-term policy challenges that are actually quite pressing? You know, I could think of two, th- two or three that will require resolution in the third or the fourth quarter. Brexit and the implementation of the protocol is one. Um, the question around the fiscal framework, Christine has spoken about that. That will be a second. Um, the third will be rule of Law, what to do in particular, I think, with Hungary or Orban trends into his election. Um, and then you know, the transatlantic alliance in light of what we've seen over the course of the last few weeks with the AUKUS deal. So I'll take those three points in turn. On, on weak German leadership, I think, look, the overall sense from the outside is you've got two candidates, they've run a terrible campaign, and the chancellor who emerges, regardless of the identity, will be weaker. They'll be sitting on top of a much more fragmented coalition, three new parties in power, uh, none of which have any real historical um, um, precedent of cooperating with each other in this situation. Not recently, at least, um, that will create more friction. Domestically, there'll be a need for more um, domestic politics, more coalition management. And all of those things will subtract from the new Chancellor's ability to lead in the EU. I think there's also a tendency to overestimate the extent to which these individuals actually understand Europe and its processes, you know, the way it does things and and some of these policy challenges. You know, I think that will arguably take much more time to to, to really uh, to figure out than... Building, building a coalition which could actually come together quite quickly. You know, to what extent does Lechette really understand European policy process? Scholz perhaps a bit better because of his role as finance minister, but I think there is there is something of a gap in terms of knowledge at the European level about how things work. And I think that all will subtract from the role, the leadership role Germany and the new chancellor will likely, will likely be able to play in the short term. Now, that arguably will be exacerbated by and this is my second point the overall deficit of leadership in Europe as Macron uh, transitions with his own election in the first half of next year. Now, you know, I think you know our, our sense is Macron will win the election. We have quite high conviction there, but he is vulnerable. That's something all incumbents I think are facing, um, which is a, which is a function of COVID and how uncertain the coronavirus pandemic is and how that will play out over the course of the remainder of this year. So Macron is vulnerable, not not because he'll lose to Le Pen, but because there may be a credible centre-right challenger that knocks him out of the first round and prevents him getting into the runoff. So this means, I think, from the end of this year, really, all through the presidency, that France will chair of the council in the first half. of next year, Macron will be very much focused on his domestic political context. And the two-round... Uh, race takes place quite early, it's 10th and 24th of April, but I think people often forget there are legislative elections that happen in June. And so you don't really get the French system moving into a position of coherence until late summer. And then, of course, you need France and Germany with the new leaders and their respective mandates to get into a groove. So I think you've you've really got a transition in Germany, a transition in France. They're not synchronised, they don't overlap, and I think that does ultimately impact both France and Germany's ability to lead in Europe between now and certainly until the middle of next year. Now, that that gap, that combination, I think, from our perspective, then what we try to understand and analyse is how does that leadership deficit at the European level, these transitions, impact the Union's ability to address some of these near-term policy challenges? And I'll talk about two more. First is the protocol and all of the issues around Brexit. Um, You know, I think our our sense is the Article 16 risk is definitely underpriced, right? I think there's just an assumption that Boris Johnson and David Frost, they won't go there because going there does not resolve anything. The protocol remains. You stay within the framework of the protocol. It exacerbates legal and political uncertainty. You dig a deeper hole. But actually, I think when you think about the incentives and the motivations of some of the key characters in the UK from the vantage point of domestic politics, triggering Article 16 actually makes much more sense. We have a Tory party conference on the 3rd of October. It would absolutely go down well with the base and the right of the party in that context. it would absolutely put Keir Starmer in a very difficult situation because his room for manoeuvre on Europe here in the UK is very, very limited. And so anything that forces him to articulate a slightly softer, more pro-EU approach is immediately used opportunistically by the Tories to really prevent Starmer being able to make inroads into the Red Wall, this, this coalition of voters he needs to win back in order to be competitive in 2023. It it absolutely sticks it to the European Union and again challenges the EU legally and politically to respond. And there's a question as to whether the EU wants to be on the side of escalation. And so short-term, tactically and substantively, it absolutely serves the government's interest. Now, no matter who I talk to in Berlin, you get this very lazy response, which is almost, you know, of course we'll just delegate to the European Commission and they will lead the process. And there's no real thinking about The consequences of an Article 16 move by the UK government, you know, ultimately that could result in a trade war. There's no automaticity there. But the implications of triggering Article 16 in the process that then um, uh, creates and catalyzes could ultimately result in trade retaliation. And to not really be thinking in a very meaningful or serious way about those issues at all. I find quite remarkable um, and, and quite interesting and, and perhaps quite telling. So that's one issue. I think that's a near term risk. I, I don't think this is going to be something that plays out next year. I think Frost and Johnson are going to make a decision about what to do in the third and the fourth quarter. So as this coalition is either being stood up or indeed has just come to power, I think we'll have to address this. This will be a very near term challenge. The next then, I'll just pick up really yes, briefly very quickly. The next very quickly is just on the fiscal question, Walter. Um, You know, I think we're very very worried, I think, that in building a coalition, the concessions offered to the FDP to do more domestically will come at the expense of flexibility at the European level. And I think there's a real risk um, that the recovery that is really taking hold is completely crashed as a result of re-implementation of a a very austere fiscal framework in 2023 and the window to get resolution on this is basically between now and April, which we can talk more about in the Q&A. So that's something as well we're quite concerned about and where you don't really have any coherence, I think, based on what we're hearing domestically, either from Schultz, Lachette or the various coalition partners.
0: Thank you very much. So what I take from your uh, uh, contribution, Mitch, is to say, in a way, a a, a German government, even if it wants continuity with respect to Brexit and the fiscal positioning in the European reform process and recovery process, will almost not be possible to be the same, especially because then also itself is not such a leading nation as it was before. Unless Somebody wants very quickly respond to what another panelist has said. I think we should go straight to the um, Q&A, because there's some really good questions there. Um, Can I remind you that please put your affiliation, are you an LSE student, are you a a journalist, whatever, into uh, it. Some names are recognized, of course. Um, And you can also use the like function. Then a question, it has also already happened, comes on the top list and I take them then first, that is your social media democracy for you. I'll take three questions that are at the moment on the top. The first is by Vladimir Jochevich, I don't know who he is, Um, and he says Germany played an active role in the Balkans. Um, Angela Merkel visited this region just before the end of her mandate. Can somebody assess whether the approach to the Balkans will change, especially in relation to the problem of Serbia and Kosovo? I would think Daniela or or Ulrike have something to say to that about that. Then uh, Samuel Huntington, um, surprisingly young, uh, a student of ours, asks, would a traffic light coalition, for instance, be interested in taking a tougher line on misbehavior within the EU, thinking, for example, of democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe? And then a question by uh, Jonathan Siner. I was wondering how the future of Nord Stream 2 will look like. The Greens heavily articulate their objections regarding the projects. And as the Greens will be most likely part of the future government, Will they give up on that position? Is there a possibility that Nord Stream 2 is shut down? Uh, Here I think Mitch or um, Christian may want to come in. So first the question on the Balkans, then one on uh, democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe and how German governments respond to this. And then that old friend Nord Stream 2, which is uh, a really contentious issue inside the EU. Who would like to go first? Sorry, I have no. I can give it a start in the order of
3: the questions, if you like. Uh, So I'll pick the the Western Balkans question and then briefly on on, on democratic backsliding in the EU. Um, So for the Western Balkans, um, first of all, no campaign issue at all. Um, Very hard to really guess beyond the headline uh, positions that we can see of the parties in, in let's say, public appearances, but, but nothing more longer programmatic, I w- I think, you know, everyone will, will subscribe to the ongoing negotiation processes. But I think depending on whom you then have in relevant positions and for the enlargement process, it is obviously the chancellery and then the foreign office. If we saw uh, a green handwriting on that policy, I suppose, because the Greens have a, I would say, sharper analytical view on how external influence plays in the EU, but also in its neighborhood and and obviously the uh, um, potential, uh, well, the enlargement countries, um, I think... Maybe they will try and hold politically because the negotiations are in the EU's hands. But there's always also a bilateral relationship. Try and hold leaders from the region more to account with regards to their openness and proximity to Russia and China. And Serbia, of course, is, is a country uh, that is on their on their radar. Um, then on, uh, the Berlin process, maybe, which I think is, is an important or was an important or is an important forum, uh, for dialogue with the Western Balkan countries. There is a concern, um, and I really do hope, uh, the new German government doesn't go that way, that this process could actually be handed over from the Berlin government, which, which in a way hosted, uh, the Berlin process, co- continuously with partners, of course, that this could go to Brussels and the European Commission. I think that would be a mistake. It was really a Merkel project. So I would hope that any next chancellor would hold on to that dialogue forum, because if you give it to the Commission, then the stake that the member states, the EU member states have in the dialogue with the Western Balkans and the commitment that Germany would show uh, would be less visible and may even be less important. Um, and so I think it is very important to have this parallel track, uh, to the official EU negotiations led by, um, led by the European Commission. On Serbia and Kosovo, um, you know, there was, I I don't think that any of the current, uh, candidates for, for either foreign ministry or the chancellery, uh, you know, in any way would try and push for the land swap idea, um, which, you know, has been seen as a risky endeavor uh, when the idea came up from the German perspective. Um, so I wouldn't expect a real policy change here. Let me briefly comment on uh, backsliding democracy and whether the, the result of the German elections matters. I think it would. Um, so, the, you know, one story that can be told about what does the EU do about it, you know, you you can direct all eyes on Brussels, and you say the processes sit there, the Article 7 procedures, and the review of rule rule of law, which is now a regular uh, report once a year, and then the Commission takes a position, and the uh, and and the Council deals with it. Yes, all that is true. It is a Brussels-led process, but I would say the big mistake that Germany made over the past years not was not to make this a also German political and bilateral topic with um, Viktor Orban in Hungary and with the peace government in Poland. Uh, In particular, in the case of Hungary, first of all, there's a huge asymmetry between both countries in terms of size, in terms of economic power, and in terms of economic interdependencies because Hungary is a huge recipient of German FDI. Uh, so you could say there's a mutual dependence. Yes, but I think had Germany very early on when Viktor Orban started to implement the reforms, and this has been now more than a decade, essentially since 2010, if Germany had been more vocal, more explicit, more critical, and maybe even sanctioning or threatening not, not official EU sanctions, but sanctions coming out of the German attitude towards uh, Hungary, maybe discouragement towards, um, German companies, that they were risking to work in an environment which doesn't fully respect rule of law principles. This would have been important signals. And uh, it didn't happen.
0: Um, the theory uh, seems to have been that... As Let's just look forward, Daniela. So yeah, now you think a German government will have yep. to become more hardline on this. Yes, I think indeed. I think a German new German government, frankly, no
3: matter who is chancellor, can take a fresh start at it. If the Greens come in strongly into the government, there will be a difference in tone. Um, And if there's an SPD chancellor, I would also think that the change of tone may be more important. But I would expect also a new CDU chancellor to be more explicit on those norms. Not least to back up their own commissioner, also a CDU politician, Ursula von der Leyen.
0: Okay. Ulrike, do you want to say anything? There are quite a few questions for you, especially in the Q&A so yeah, I'll
1: keep this super short because I just have literally just one kind of small nugget of information on the enlargement question, just because I find it interesting. So of all the parties, when you read all the party manifestos, which I had the pleasure of doing, um, something that really struck me, and that is how pro-EU enlargement the Greens are. Because the Greens basically not only are in favor of the enlargement towards the Western Balkan, which of course are already candidates, Turkey as well. But also, they keep the door open for the EU-associated countries in the Eastern Partnership, so Ukraine, Moldova, um, and and Georgia, and and that struck me as as quite interesting. Now, of course, you know it's one party, and it's just Germany as in one country within the EU twenty seven. But just something that I wanted to add on the enlargement question.
0: Mm-hmm. Can I then ask um, either uh, or both uh, Christian and and Mitch? What do you think about the whole North Stream uh, issue? I mean, I think of Mitch because some would say that uh, the, the gas crisis in Europe and particularly in the UK has also perhaps something to do with North Stream because Gazprom seemed to have uh, kind of shut down some of the deliveries f- through other channels in order to bring on the decision uh, on, on authorizing the, the North Stream too. Uh, And generally, uh, will the Greens perhaps be? This is more to Christian. Will the Greens be hardline on on this carbon um, uh, uplifting, you know, um, investment that the Germans had with Russia, and that was such a foreign relations uh, uh, scandal scandalising issue for most. So, who would like to start,
4: Mitch? I will. Waltrod, I'll happily start, but I will answer the question you directed to Christian on carbon taxes. <laughs> and I'd also very briefly just like to comment on the Hungary-Poland issue because I think this is quite important. It's it's not simply, I think, a course correction domestically in Germany. And I think we will see that. I agree with, I agree with Daniela, regardless of Jamaica or Traffic Light Coalition. I think there is a perception that Merkel let this slide too long. But I think there's also massive pressure on von der Leyen from the European Parliament to, 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 to begin to use some of the instruments that came together at the back end of last year to turn the screws on Orbán and, and, and Kaczynski and I think actually in particular with Hungary you're, you're likely to see something of a distinction and a divergence and I think really as, as Daniela said and I agree I think things have gone so far there and the, the last point I'll make on on, on this is Orbán's ejection from the EPP, I think, is absolutely important here and plays into this in a very material way, because when he was a part of the EPP, he had a lot of protection and influence from other centre-right parties in the EU. And I think, you know, the influence came from coordinating positions ahead of European councils, where he was at the table with all the other centre-right leaders, and the protection came from the fact Nobody wanted to spotlight all the things Orban was doing because he was part of the same political family. Well, now he's on the outside. You see a a kind of Brexit tendency to, to signal how different Orban is and how he's not like us. I think with that loss of protection and influence, Orban's also gone a bit more crazy domestically. He's got an election next year, and I think that will exacerbate and reinforce some of the hardening we're seeing in Berlin and Brussels to point to Budapest and make an example of them. So we're quite... I, I think we see quite a, a, a high likelihood of short-term escalation between the two there. Just very, very quickly on carbon taxes, um, if I understood your question correctly, because this is something we're doing quite a lot of work on. There's a big question. Are the I Christian-
0: don't think I, I asked about carbon taxes. It was okay. about the North Stream 2 issue and whether that will be stopped because the Greens, for example, will be very hardline on this. Shall we pass that on to Christian? Please do. Yeah. We come perhaps back to carbon taxes. Christian.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I just want to uh, quickly add one point on the on 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 the Hungary and Poland issue. Um I, I'm not an expert on the rule of law, obviously. Um, but I when the recovery fund was published and the numbers flowing east, I was very surprised that the numbers are that high, that the sort of the formula were designed in a way that the East receives so much. And um this is now a once in a lifetime opportunity to 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 have proper economic leverage vis-a-vis these countries um mm. and sort of the, the 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 fines that we can impose on the rule of law in terms of economics um are are minuscule compared to the recovery fund money that is held back by this uh, so i think it would be such a waste of this recovery fund money if we if we didn't toughen up on on this issue that's just the economist perspective on, on something I actually don't know that much about. Um on, on Nord Stream 2, I mean, this is um I I think that ship has sailed. Um, because the Greens would need to put an enormous amount of political bargaining chips uh to to, to sort of torpedo this project. Uh so I don't think there is there's a prospect that the Greens would do it. They are definitely unhappy with the completion or almost completion of that of that pipeline. And the gas crisis that is unfolding also in Europe um, and, and will will be a, an issue over the entire uh, autumn and winter, um, I think, plays into the hands of the critics and sort of mm-hmm. make this Nord Stream 2 also a domestic embarrassment, which so far it wasn't really. Um, it was a geopolitical issue and, and sort of people realize that everybody is against it, uh, but it's, it, it wasn't it was never, I felt, a politically toxic issue, in part because Merkel was backing it. Um, And so I don't I'm I'm afraid that that ship has sailed
0: Um. from. seems to agree with you strongly. So let me take a few more questions because there's so much to. um, To take on Fabian was a colleague of mine uh, at the European Institute says. Do you see in a way that Lindner plays in the hands of a green, red, a red, green, red coalition? Um, because if they are not willing to soften their fiscal stance in face of gigantic investment needs, and I would add in parentheses a very different idea about tax reforms than uh, the SPD and the Green have, then the coalition talks of SPD, Greens and FDP, this uh, traffic light coalition will break down and then open the door to a red-green, red coalition. Does any of you see that as a as a likely dynamic of coalition? Um, negotiations. Then Alexander K. Piperis, he asks, do you anticipate that there could be a shift in German foreign policy from its very transactional based relationship with Turkey, with respect to, for example, money for refugees, um, to a more value based approach, um, like uh, the arms export embargo, or can these things go parallel? I would also then like Jakub Rogowiecki, who asks Ulrike specifically, given that the Greens will likely be necessary in government formation, with Annalena Baerbock being an outspoken critic of political actions taken by Russia and China, would you say that there could be some shift from overly pragmatic policy that Germany is known for towards one that confronts these powers? it would allow you to come back to this point that I also found quite interesting. In a way, you say there's an incoherent position to be on the one hand more hardline with respect to these big uh, guys on the block, while at the same time, you don't want to invest in military capacities. So um, let's perhaps take these questions. First, coalitions uh, with respect to um, it, it, does that go to, is there a chance for a red-green, red coalition? Uh, does the SPD and the green co- ch- uh, signal a, ch- a change in the Turkey policy? And then the question of, um, yeah, for Ulrike about the, the uh, policy stance in, towards Russia and China. Can I ask first on the FDP? Because, Christian, you had already started this, Christian, and...
2: In yeah, terms. absolutely. Um, so, uh, I think y- you could tell with, with, with the rise of Olaf Scholz, you could also see Christian Lindner's rhetoric changing a bit, uh, basically saying, so the black zero, which we call uh, is our name for the balanced budget. Uh, the black zero fetish was never mine, but the CDU's, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a smart sentence and sort of placing himself in, in, in that spectrum. But he's relatively clear on adherence to the debt break, but he's smart. F- f- and not excluding some of the other options that, you know, conservatives would say circumvent the debt break, but, um, I, I, would say make creative use of the debt break. And so I think, I think there is willingness by the FDP that my, 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 my is is not entirely clear from the party platform of how far they are willing to go. I mean, the FDP's party platform on fiscal matters was almost unserious in a way, right? They are, they were, they were proposing tax cuts. And we're saying that they want to maintain the debt break at the same time, where even I would say sort of centrist slash conservative leading economic research institutes were saying, uh, ah, sorry, that math, even with the most generous assumptions, uh, is never going to work. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it's not clear if it's how, how far they're willing to go. I think the red, green, red coalition on economic grounds. Um, well, the left party has moderated on that account. As well. Um, and the demands of the left party are somewhat a more socialist version of the SPD and the green platform. So, for example, the, the social democrats want 12 euro minimum wage and the left party wants 13. Surely, there is some room for compromise, and some of the other economic issues are similar. Uh, that, that that there is that there is clearly room for compromise. So the decision on the red-green-red coalition is really on on security and foreign policy issues, and not on economic issues. Yeah, yeah. And I think the left party has moderated enough for it to be a credible last resort threat. And this is exactly what the SPD and the Greens need.
0: Hmm. Mitch and. Uh, Ulrike, you get, you can say something on this. Why don't we go then directly to the question that was also directed at you, um, and you can add something to this FDP, which I had the impression you want to.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so just the the red, green, red uh, coalition question, because so that's SPD, Greens, and the Linke party. Quite honestly, that would be quite a catastrophic um, outcome from a foreign and defence policy uh, viewpoint. And that's not just my view. It is my view. But that's also pretty much the view of almost all, I would say, uh, German German partners and allies. So I think that's, you know, from a foreign policy point of view, that's, that's quite striking. And the reason for that is that the Linke really has foreign policy positions that are quite out there. So just to name a few, they want to dissolve or at least leave NATO and create a security alliance with Russia. They are against all German military operations abroad, including those, for example, in the the Baltics to support the NATO um, uh, partners in the Baltics. Interestingly enough, though, I mean, first of all, I think this coalition... We would almost
0: agree with Biden on this these days, no? Say again? They would, Gysi and Biden are very close these days on this.
1: Well, um, the, what's interesting, though, is, I mean, this, this coalition is quite unlikely to begin with, though not impossible, <clears throat> which is interesting in and of itself. But, you know, if this coalition happens, I'm going to spend the next four years reminding the Linke that in their party program, they quite literally have the sentence saying, we will not be part of any government that spends more on the military, sends any kind of soldiers abroad, and you know generally does what German foreign policy does. So, quite, quite, quite interesting and quite striking. And um, on the the questions um, that were directed to me, I have to admit I love the assumptions because both of these questions: <laughs> one was speaking about a transactional policy towards Russia, uh, towards Turkey, Turkey, and the other was speaking about an overly pragmatic. A German relationship with Russia, and I find these assumptions very interesting because I don't think that German foreign policy makers would see their foreign policy making in this light, and I also don't quite think that that's what they were going for. Um, of course, you know, all over the world, there's always this question between values and and um, and interests, uh, and and of course, you know, I'm not saying you know Germany has a fully values-based foreign policy, but it is definitely trying to have that, so I don't think that you know Germany actually has an overly pragmatic or transactional policy to anyone I want to say. <laughs> Would this change with the greens in government? in theory, yes, it is true that the greens i mean not only do they emphasize human rights more um, and values. They actually want Germany to adopt a feminist foreign policy. Um, so that's quite new in, in the German political realm. And, and so they definitely put kind of different foci uh, in, in the German foreign policy. Um, that being said, we will in all likelihood see a three-party coalition. And there's always the question of like who gets the relevant ministries, namely the foreign office and the defense office. And so I think these two elements will mean that any position, whether it's the Greens or the FDPs or anyone's positions, will end up being watered down. So even if we get a government with the Greens in it, even if it is, you know, SPD led with the Greens, I don't think we're going to see a huge shift from a maybe slightly more pragmatic to a more, values-based or feminist foreign policy um, as as has been implied here. Maybe a little bit, but I I think it's going to get watered down in the end.
0: Can I ask, I think Turkey is an important uh, case that we haven't discussed so far. Um, Could I ask both Mitch and Daniela perhaps say something on whether you think the Merkel um, tightrope walk with respect to Turkey is not feasible, arguably, for a long time anymore now with uh, perhaps Afghan humanitarian migration. Um, what changes do you expect or what does the world expect from Germany to change there? Mitch, do you want to start?
4: I'll say a very few, very few words on Turkey, Waldrad, and then I'll defer to Daniela to talk about the difference in policy from various coalition options of the Turkey. Look, I think structurally, the problem is Erdogan is here and he's not going anywhere. If you look today, the central bank was forced to cut the interest rate by 100 basis points, which came as a complete surprise. And I think inflation is close to nineteen and a half, twenty 20%. You know, he's always two steps away from a full on balance of payments crisis. And this is in the context of him running into an election. Um, In 2023, and I just think structurally the the economy and the interaction of what's happening with the economy always drives a lot of foreign policy adventurism for Erdogan when it's convenient for him to do so, when he needs to distract the intention of his voters. So perhaps there will be a softer position from Germany in light of the need to cooperate over refugees from Afghanistan. But structurally, Erdogan and the economy are going to remain a big problem, and I think that's going to drive a lot of the problem and a lot of the friction we've seen historically.
0: Thank you. Daniela. is there anything you would like to say about Turkey and the approach to it? Well, Turkey?
3: yes, I, I think with a, with a real dose of realism. <laughs> so there are constraints, let's put it that way, on, on any German government's Turkey policy, and that is the Turkish population in Germany or those of Turkish origin in Germany, um, of whom more than within Turkey uh, are supporters of Erdogan. And so uh, this is something, you know, where, where the, the external relationship um, with Turkey at a moment in time where there are more and more reports to what extent Turkey also intervenes in the German electoral campaign, really. Um, it, it, I think it is on the one hand, of course, one wants to push back and wants to be critical. But on the other hand, you know that German citizens of Turkish origin plus Turkish citizens living in Germany um, are critical of a policy that takes a harder line on Erdogan. That's one thing. Second thing is um, alternatives to the migration deals that have, have been struck. Frankly, very hard to think of, to do away with them entirely. What I would think a government which would have a strong green Uh, participation, uh, you know, what what they would do, they would probably be more alert to the question of uh, human rights violations within Turkey, not only vis-a-vis refugees, but also, uh, you know, within Turkey, uh, the suppression of free media and so on. So there I would think there would be a more critical tone, but on the question is it conceivable that the next German government does away with a migration deal, uh, which, by the way, is not a German-Turkish deal, of course, but it's a really European deal, um, at a time where we actually move towards a phase where there will be an argument to strike more and with other governments uh, because of the, um, the situation in Afghanistan? Um, yeah, my realism tells me I don't think there will be a substantial substantive change. Um, At the moment, Turkey, with whom the EU officially, you know, never ended the negotiations, although they are de facto stalled for a long time, um, I I don't think any government would push right now for new dynamics in this simply because the situation in Turkey does not lend itself to this. Um, It hasn't become better over the past month and years. It has become obviously with regards to european norms it has become worse and so yeah i think there's this you know double edged sword to some extent we need deals and um good treatment of migrants in the country so it's it's not just any deal that the next german government will look into and then there is of course um yeah the yeah a list of conflictual issues with regards to human rights and and civil liberties and
0: so on now I have from my uh, friend and colleague Matthias Matthijs, a professor at CISE um, in um, in Washington, uh, a very good question. Of course, um, if the polls are correct, then there have been remarkable st- uh, the Greens, uh, the SPD, and the FDP will gain votes compared to t- compared to 2017, while the center right CSU will lose a substantial share of voters. And the extreme right AfD and the extreme left Die Linke also lose. Does anyone have a good explanation for why Germany is defying the continent-wide trend that favours right-wing populism? Then I have a question from uh, uh, Economics and Politics sixth form student who says. I have heard lots of talks around an EU defense army, something that Macron himself appears to be championing. How feasible is such a thing? If possible, would it be seen as a threat to Russia and cause more tension as well as uh, as the USA seems to be displeased by such a concept? Um, What part would Germany play in EU defense, especially since they usually take the lead over much of Europe, just not in military? And finally, a question from Pia Günther. She says, "I'm wondering what Germany's future will look like in terms of being able to compete economically if we would go totally green, implement strategies of degrowth. Considering these factors, for example, China, then the actor on the height of its growth and power, still catching up. Um, Germany, this, what would happen to its export power in the car industry, energy transition?" uh and then Germany li- limiting transnational corporations to to make them climate conform and would lo- lose out as an attractive location for TNCs. So she is skeptical that one can give the Greens a big say in this coalition. Can I ask um so somebody to to have a a view of this trend, Germany backing the trend that uh the continent the right wing populism does not win in, in Germany, and if anything, it's a bit of center left uh, strengthening right now. And then uh, a question about defense capability that the French wants. And finally, the degrowth strategy and the greens. Is that actually really feasible? The last one, perhaps, again, to, uh, well, whoever wants to, to say that. So can I ask who volunteers for something, Ulrike?
1: I love to volunteer for these, these questions. Um, so first of all, very briefly on the, the right-wing populism. I mean, it is true that the AfD, that four years ago, we were really talking a lot about the AfD and there was a real worry that that right-wing populism could become a really strong force in German politics. That didn't quite materialize. But number one, they still poll at I don't know, I haven't seen the latest numbers, but 11% or something like that, which honestly is, I believe, is too much. And importantly, this national number hides uh, the the numbers from some German Bundesländer, especially in the east, where the AfD may uh, end up being the strongest party in this election, and that's really concerning. So, so a bit of a caveat on: have we really managed to to uh, overcome this or not fall into this trap? Still, uh, it is true that you know they're not polling at twenty or thirty percent, and I think they're kind of. Three main reasons for this. Number one, I mean, the German history has kind of taught, if if the German history has taught one thing uh, to the German population is that right right wing populists are are bad news. uh, And and luckily, most Germans still realize this. Number two, the AfD didn't manage to um, benefit... Or motivate uh, the the kind of anti vaccination crowd in Germany as much. Maybe it wasn't strong enough. It, it just it just didn't quite manage to do that. And number three, climate change was a huge topic in this election, and really really, I think um, impacted a lot of voting decisions. And the AfD, I mean, that they're, they're kind of almost adopting this we don't quite believe in human made climate change position, which a lot of right wing parties do. And this just doesn't fly in Germany. I mean, pretty much no one believes that. So that that didn't quite work. But the real question I want to take out is about the European army, because I was kind of waiting for that one, because it always um, it always comes. So I have to say, so, number one, Germany, Germany doesn't lead on European defense. We did actually, we ran a poll at ECFR recently where we asked um, EU member states in which areas Germany could lead. And they gave pretty high marks for human rights. They gave pretty high marks for kind of economic and, and um, fiscal uh, topics. They gave really low marks for all the kind of geopolitical questions, so China, etc. Yeah. 27%, which I thought was way too much of Europeans' thought that Germany could lead on defense, but it's only 27%. And again, I think this is too much, and even Germans didn't quite believe this. I think they said 20%. So so I I really don't think that Germany can lead on European defense simply because Germany has a rather tricky relationship with defense and military in the first place. And the reason why it likes um, European defense and the idea of the European army is because it sees this as a way of unifying Europe more and almost as a way of getting rid of all these nasty military questions at the national level and putting it at the, at the European level. So, so it's, it's not really focused at, at, at real capabilities. I must admit, it is really quite striking that I think the four, the four center parties, if you want to call it like this, or the four, um, leading parties, so CDU, SPD, FDP and Greens, they all have the European army in their party manifesto which I find rather frustrating. Um, but, but yeah, it's definitely still an idea that's kind of floating around in Europe. Why do I think it's not going to be an idea that's that's in any way kind of useful? Well, the main reason is that the European army, quite honestly, should come after the United States of Europe and not before anything. You know, if you do the European army before the United States of Europe, you basically put the the, the, the carriage uh, before the, the horse. You can't have joined armed forces if you don't have a completely integrated foreign policy, but just you know any kinds of, of policy areas. So I for me this is one of those those things that kind of sounds good, um, but it's not going to materialize. The Europeans are not going to give up their armed forces. And if the idea is not to do that, but rather to create a, a kind of 28 army for the EU, then I would love to know A, where does the money come from? Because we're clearly not spending enough for that. And then two who kind of command such an such an army and either it's by unanimous decision and we're never going to use it or it's by majority decision and I really can't see this. So, yeah, well, so okay, I'm afraid I think I that, that I have to crush any hopes of a European army. I'm I think, think I have to
0: stop you there. You will never make it for an invitation with Macron for tea in that way. Um,
1: can I ask? No, Honestly? no, 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 I disagree on that. No, but really, because Macron is not in favor of the European army. I don't oh, want to I capitalize see. on that, but this, this is really oh, okay. an incorrect right. understanding.
0: Okay. Degrowth strategy, Christian. Is that really so, such a terrible idea for Germany's attractiveness and economic potential itself?
2: So there, there is no degrowth strategy, full stop. Um, so this is because it is politically a complete non-starter and this is why it, just the fringes of the Green Party are actually advocating it. But what is, what is important is sort of how do you couple an industrial export nation with um, an ambitious climate change agenda? And that is, a, that is a very important question. That is one of the questions that I think is that, I mean, this is not at the heart of every, every party platform, but it is a serious concern of every party and every party's platform. And I think one of the, one of the striking indications there is that, for example, the left party, uh, that would not be known to being extremely industry friendly, um, has in its party platform a 20 billion a year transformation fund for the industry just to help with that transition, right? So that shows you that even the leftist fringe is willing to spend 20 billion a year on in helping industry make that transformation. And the other parties will just be the same. So it's, we, we will, we will see. And this is also why the industry is pushing for sort of ditching, ditching the black zero. We will see a very strong push by all German parties, regardless of who's in government to make sure that German industry, including the entire supply chain, survives the transition to climate change. And one of the, one of the indication that I find a bit worrying in that regard is um that there is a very strong push to, for a, for a hydrogen economy even though sort of the science on on hydrogen as a, as an important part of that uh, strategy is, is is not as clear cut as sort of some of the proponents are saying so the so the this is to say sort of the lobbying is is really tough uh, to make that happen um whether you know wh- whether germany will be a leader on this and to make it even more or more problematic for, for, for the German uh, economic model than for others, I'm not sure. I mean, most of the climate agenda is done at the European level and the climate targets are set at the European level. Uh, I think one of the crucial questions will be, can we agree with the United States on either a carbon border adjustment mechanism or some form of a climate club? And this is where... Um, I think the conservative parties are a bit more skeptical and the progressive parties are a bit more forceful in in trying to push that. Uh, That will be sort of what what I will be watching when it comes to this question of whether the German model, the export model can thrive in a sort of climate ambitious uh, political
0: environment. Mitch, can I bring you in there because you earlier wanted to talk about the carbon tax? I mean, one way, instead of doing... Even I take the point of Christian that probably there is not such a strong growth strategy as Pia may have thought. But if you want to go green, you can always say, let's Europeanize it. Then at least we don't have a competitive disadvantage relative to our major trade partners. Where are we with the carbon, a carbon tax? And do you think the new government will be a force for that? And to Daniela, I would like, later like to come back with this question by Matthias Matthijs about why does Germany back the trend?
4: So, Walter, this is actually one area where I think the difference between Lachette and Schultz could actually be quite important and quite substantive. And, and the reason is there's a big, I think, philosophical difference between uh, Paris and Berlin about how to implement the carbon tax, not necessarily on... On the design or the details of the design, there are some differences there and um, the legislation will go through trial now I think through m- most of next year. But in terms of how you use the tax, is it is it purely a nuclear deterrent that you 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 kind of have in your back pocket as leverage to get other big emitters to the table and begin to match EU climate ambition? Or do you actually implement the thing? And if you do implement it, do you do that unilaterally or as part of a collective? And I like think Christian's point I think that the the view, I think, within the German system has been we've got to do this multilaterally. And of course, in the Elysee, I think around Macron and and the French, I think, are much more willing to go unilateral and and do this unilaterally. And I think, you know, one one very important and deterministic signpost will be COP and um, the commitments we see from some of the big emitters in that context, and then try to see how that then maps onto the internal debate within Europe. I think Lachette, and you know, especially if you have a Mertz, anywhere near an economy or finance ministry will definitely try to dilute any idea of unilateral implementation. I think this is perhaps something Schultz and the Greens in a, in a traffic light context may lean into a bit more, but COP will be very important, I think, to the new debate that follows.
0: Daniela, can I ask you? Do you have a good explanation for why Germany, if anything, there's now a strengthening a little bit of the left-of-center party groupings?
3: Well, I think you know the question was was I think um, Matthias put it more particularly on the IFD, and I think the performance of the party now they have spent four years in our parliament as the largest opposition party, which means they have held important posts, which by definition goes to the largest opposition party, such as chair of the budgetary committee um, and other things. And their performance in those jobs, plus their way of using um, parliamentary procedures to actually um to slow down parliamentary processes to extend meetings to you know have sessions run into friday afternoons because they are actually hindering progress um that is something not only playing out in the german federal parliament but it also plays out in in regional parliaments and, and elsewhere where they sit this obstruction of the system uh this is something that that really um is is not seen positively um it's It's their way of of showing their dissent obviously uh with the system, but this is nothing that um gets any support. Then comes the covid nineteen crisis and uh and the climate crisis. Ulrike has mentioned both I think that is really important that you have people who seriously um argue uh, on primetime TV that neither exists and nothing needs to be done and and you know spreading all kinds of conspiracy theory third element the awareness of um, external interference in domestic politics campaigns broader public has grown um, and one vector of influence is the ifD um, so um, you know there is there is a very you know, close and even articulated proximity with Russia. Um, meetings have come, you know, known to the public where IFD leaders met with uh, with Bannon. So really, the advice of Trump, uh, who, who who also advised other uh, far right populists around Europe in their work, and all of this has really created a very bad image of the party, which is under surveillance now um, by uh, the the. Um, uh, the intelligence services in Germany. So it still has a voter potential of about 11 to 12%. Um, there were fears that this could go higher, up to 15 but I think really their behavior and the crisis may have solidified their followership. So those who wish to follow conspiracy theories, who wish to buy into that narrative, they will more firmly feel this is my political home. But others who were sort of looking at the party and thinking, oh, well, maybe it's not really radical, it's not far-right extremist, they have seen a lot over the past years that has to make them think, oh, wow, this is a party which is really on the political fringes and where some people even in the party leadership group uh, do adopt extremist positions.
0: take a few other questions there are some that seems to overlap a bit but one is about leadership that earlier in particular mitch has problematized that a lot and stefan colin says something that i actually also have heard in recent interviews with top officials in in brussels christian you said malco pushed the recovery fund what, what was that they're not really Scholz in the finance ministry, which would say a lot about what we could expect if he became chancellor. So Stefan Collignon, a former colleague of ours and a visiting fellow at the European Institute. Then Martin Fischer, a political economy student of last year. Um, He asks, what will be the impact of the German election on economic and financial integration within the EU, for instance, what will be the outcome of the election uh, with respect to the European Deposit Insurance for which a legislative pro- legislative proposal is planned by the end of this year? Will the CDU CSU-led government oppose this? And then I take a, a, a new question below, which is also, I think, a very important question. And I have lost the who said it, but it is about the relationship with, between Germany and Africa. And, um, you know, this is not the closest continent uh, to, to Germany in its geopolitical interests, but we all know uh, it can become one speed through uh, humanitarian migration or uh, simply through uh, the sheer potential for misery that develops when we, for example, don't share a vaccination and so on. What is the, what do you expect from a, German new government with respect to Africa. So can I briefly have Scholz's role in the whole previous reforms, the prospect of economic reforms that Martin Fischer asked for? And then this big questions, question about Africa.
2: And um, so let me just quickly say on on Scholz and Merkel. Um, Yes so Schulz 's finance Ministry is sort of formally in charge of the design of these things, so it's mainly you know built in the finance ministry but um so i I was one of those who who wrote pieces about this at the time, sort of what 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 should be done and when we were writing our piece we we um we put this legal basis that they used sort of the uh, European uh, Treaty and Solidarity Clause. We argued for a common EU debt, but at the time we thought, well, let's be bold. Let's uh, let's ask for four hundred billion, right? And so we 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 thought we were really really bold, and uh, we we uh, we didn't expect EU governments to agree to increasing the EU budget to pay for it. We always thought national guarantees would still be necessary, but you know EU governments went above and beyond that. So th- this is just to say. Even a long-term observer of, of this like me was surprised by how bold this was. And this cannot be done by the finance minister alone, right? So just as, a, just as one, one, one example of why I think Merkel was sort of the one who, who pushed this uh, or who was chiefly responsible for this, um, she had spoken to all 26 heads of states and, um, you know, got at least their, their sort of tacit approval, if not consent. Um, she has made sure that nothing of that was leaked to the press before it would get published. She mm-hmm. got her own parliamentary group to publish a press statement in support 10 minutes after, the, after this thing went, went public, which means she had briefed and secured the support of her parliamentary group. Without any leaks to them. So this means just how much political capital Merkel has put into this. So, you know, architect of the house, yes, uh, but the one commissioning that house was, uh, was Merkel. Um, on the, on the reforms, um, European deposit insurance is a good example for where, uh, where Schultz's thinking is. Um, he, he published a piece in, um, in the finance ministry in the end of 2019 on sort of where he sees the banking union to, to, to proceed. It was a sort of a progress stepwise, you know, German pace, but still, you know, progress in that direction. And I know on these things the, the finance ministry thinks progressively in that sense. So European, very European. Uh, so I would expect a Schultz chancellor to be taking an interest in these dossiers because he was interested in, in bringing this forward. But, um, the, the, the opposition, of course, is fierce and governing against the CDU opposition uh is is a tough job. So I, I wouldn't expect him to sort of be extremely bold on these issues because you have sort of German local banks, savings banks all against you. So it's a sort of you know stepwise process, um, but 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 nothing nothing revolutionary in that sense.
0: Mitch, do I see you itching saying something on that question?
4: Just very quickly, Walter, and I think you know we can navel gaze about deposit insurance and banking union, but it's not really the issue. You know, the, the, the big question is Will will Mario Draghi's performance in Italy build enough confidence in Northern Europe to have a conversation about making the recovery fund permanent? And if that's unlikely, and I think it's unlikely given all the signals we're getting from Germany, will what Mario Draghi does in Italy and Macron in France create space for a meaningful conversation over reform of the fiscal framework? Because that's 2023,
1: and the negotiation
4: for that really begins in earnest when the Commission kicks off the general review of the SGP you know at some point in the next few weeks and that's a question that needs to be resolved in the first quarter and if it's not resolved yes through the crisis Europe did a lot of unprecedented spending but it will again be forced into unprecedented tightening in a year from now so I think that's really the, the two big political questions down the track are stability and growth pact in fiscal space and recovery fund permanence. I think the banking union stuff is on a much slower timetable. And a lot less—it's structurally important, but a lot less short-term um, uh, consequential compared to these other two issues.
0: This really big question. Sorry, guys, but I give, of course, to our two female uh, uh, panelists the relationship with Africa that Berta Debele, the president of the Ethiopian Public Administration Association, has asked. Do you see any changes there? say there anything that was a bit left behind by the Merkel administration. We go slightly over time, but we close soon. I look through the questions, but there's something we really haven't addressed and it's very important. So Daniela, would you like to go first and then we'll go to Ulrike?
3: Yes, I'll be very short because of time. So yes, the the current German government hasn't been very active on Africa, though increasingly so compared to previous governments. But the point is that Germany my view can't say of itself that it has a coherent Africa strategy and that it knows exactly where it is and why it is there um, and where which means are most appropriate. So if you look at for instance military presence in Africa uh, and you look at Mali um, you'll find very few uh, people parliamentarians in Berlin who have actually voted for this mission who exactly know why we are there if it is not because uh, we are there with the French. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quoting this as an example to, to, to make the point that both in terms of security, um, fight against terrorism, but also for reasons of, uh, development and humanitarian, uh, aid. Um, I think the next German government will have to look at Africa far more holistically. And just a final little example to show you where we are currently. Um, there is a broad perception that also the think tank uh, sphere in Berlin isn't equipped for the challenge. So very recently uh, in the federal budget, we could find uh, a budget line to create a new Africa Institute, which speaks to the fact that the existing think tanks never really invested enough in capacity to have Africa teams that are strong enough to, to advise. So this will be an important addition. But I'll hand it over to Rico. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and I I'm just gonna add the following. I mean, foreign policy wasn't really a topic in this political campaign. Mm-hmm. Even Europe and the EU wasn't really a topic, which you know, your Germans tend to tend to care about quite a bit. In the three TV trials that we had, we did basically didn't talk about any of this, and this despite the fact that you know, while the campaign was going on, we had the. Afghanistan withdrawal and everything that came with this anti-AUKUS uh, new alliance. And I'm not going to call it debacle, but I mean, let's say the, the kind of quarrel over the AUKUS alliance and the submarine deal. So this is to say that, you know, given all of this, Africa certainly wasn't a topic. And even worse, if you like, it's also not really a topic in the, the party manifestos, which together amount to over a thousand pages. So... Yeah, I'm with Daniela insofar as I don't think the think tank community is equipped, I don't really think that the political community is really equipped about, um, with this, so I can't tell you where we're going with this, but I can't see any kind of new vision um, emerging, or if it is, they're really keeping it under wraps. Hmm.
0: Okay. A last question was given to me by a questioner, Nihal Ahadien, and I would like to give go in reverse order. What is Merkel's legacy? You think what is the most important one important legacy that she she left? Mitch, you are first.
4: I think it's the recovery fund, Waltraud, um, and what that potentially has done for uh, euro area sustainability over the medium to long term.
0: Thank you, Daniela. If she
3: uses the next three days to say, and it would be a permanent feature. Uh, of the EU, I would fully <laughs> agree, Mitch. Um, my worry is that it will be pulled down again. Uh, but no, you're right. This was a very bold move. I slightly disagree with Christian that I do think Scholz had a lot of convincing to do to get where they ended up. Um, but I think it's, yeah, the most important and boldest move that there was.
0: Christian.
2: Well, I wanted to say the same. So do I have to find something new? I think one of the things in, in, in response to, to, to the question on right wing populism, what I always valued and, and what I think is, is, is sort of, um, is part of her legacy as well as a style issue, sort of to make politics less divisive and a complete refusal to play any culture war games. Which must be tempting to politicians on the conservative right when there are issues like migration and to refugees mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Her refusal to do that and set the tone and stick with it. So, and and, and, and wait it out until even the CSU uh, turned migration positive. I think that is, that sets the tone, I hope, for the, for the, for the next few chances as well.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I'd say the legacy of Merkel is one of, stability, and she helped make sure that Germany and the EU made it through stormy waters. She managed, but she didn't lead, which is why I find all these questions about, you know, who will now lead the EU slightly misleading, because I don't quite feel that Germany or Merkel did that.
0: If I may give my answer, I think what Merkel actually showed, and it's slightly in contradiction to, to Ulrike, is that German politics can actually change quite rapidly, quite quickly. She had three big U-turns on nuclear energy, on migration, and then on the fiscal, fiscal integration side of the EU. Um, that is a legacy where one would think, well, what's next? What can Germany change uh, quickly and then reset some parameters of, of, of the debate. Um, whether the next one will do it, I'm not sure. But it is also that Germany is either less stable or less reliable, whatever you however you want to interpret that. Without further ado, thank you all very much for uh, an excellent discussion. Wonderful questions that made it so much easier for me because I didn't have all these good questions. Thank you very much.